St. Matthew records that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So far our text. Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Dear friends in our Lord, they said, tell us, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Gotcha questions. Maybe you've heard that term before, gotcha questions. Gotcha questions are questions that are set like traps. They're devised to make one look bad. Questions designed to leave the respondent with no good answers to give in reply. No win answers. Gotcha questions are probably never more prominent in the public sphere than they are during presidential campaign seasons. They're questions posed to candidates by journalists so often. Questions like this classic gotcha question posed over the years to many candidates vying for the Oval Office job. Mr. or Mrs. Candidate, tell, tell me if, if you're so in touch with the American people, what's the price of milk? It's a gotcha question. It's a no winner, why? Because if the candidate answers and says, well, I don't know, or likely he doesn't do his or her own grocery shopping, he seems and is, is branded as one out of touch with average Americans. But if he or she says, well, it's, it's $3.50 a gallon, as I understand the going right here, it's $3.50 a gallon. One in another part of the country, like my sister-in-law, whom I spoke with this last week in Elgin, Illinois, says, well, here, no, the milk is $2.59 a gallon. And so the candidate seems like he doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't have his facts straight. Gotcha questions. Gotcha questions. Intended, though, to trap, they don't always snap like a trap on the one to whom they're posed. Gotcha questions can go bad, too. That's exactly what happened in our text for today. A gotcha question gone bad, the Pharisees, you see, plotted to set the trap in which they might, as our text says, entangle Christ. They were fed up with Jesus and his words. In this last holy week it was before the cross, Jesus had without reservation taken their self-righteous ways to task, dismantling and deconstructing their pharisaic flaunts of piety. He even composed and delivered a number of parables directed squarely against them. And you may remember from our reading a couple weeks ago, we were told at the end of that reading that the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and they perceived, and rightly so, that he was speaking about them. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the crowds. And so now they'd set a trap. They'd entangle him in his own words because that's better than arresting him, getting him by his own words to discredit himself. And so devotees of the Pharisees went to Jesus with the Herodians. You see, desperate times call for desperate measures. That's why war they say, makes for strange bedfellows. Because you see, the Herodians 
were no natural allies at all of the Pharisees. The Herodians were a small, non-religious, rather more secular political entity, and they were staunch supporters of Herod, Herodians, of Herod and the Herodian dynasty. In fact, an alien dynasty, which was allowed by the Roman powers to exist in the land and to rule over it. Herod depended on Rome for everything. For his seat of power, he depended upon Rome. And so because it would ensure the continued good graces of the Roman Empire for Herod, these Herodians would be entirely in favor of this particular tax for Caesar or unto Caesar that was in question. And at the center of this particular question, they would have been entirely in favor of it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they hated it. They despised Herod, detested his dynasty precisely because it was an alien ruling power. The Pharisees, they were ever demanding complete independence from Rome. And they considered the monetary tribute to Caesar to be near idolatry. Why idolatry? Well, for one, by paying this coin, this this badge of servitude, as one has called it, to the Roman power, each individual was thereby affirming and ascending to Rome's right to rule over him. But beyond it was considered idolatrous also because the denarius, this particular coin of this particular tax, had on it the graven image of, of Caesar. And with words something like this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Idolatrous, they thought. So strange bedfellows indeed, the Herodians and the Pharisees. And yet we're told together, they approached Jesus and with honeyed words, they laid the bait and they set the trap. Jesus, we know that you speak the truth. We know that you teach the way of God. Everybody knows that. And you don't regard anybody, not even Caesar, when it comes to speaking the truth. So tell us, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Gotcha. Gotcha, Jesus. Because if Jesus answers, yes, you should pay the taxes, he's going to lose the support of the many Israelites who despise paying this pagan tax. It would seem to a Gentile occupation force, one that so many didn't consider legitimate. And he'd be seen to be supporting a form of idolatry if he said, yes, you should pay the tax. But if he answers, no, you shouldn't pay the taxes, then those Roman-friendly Herodians would not miss the fact that Jesus just uttered a statement of rebellion against the the ruling authorities. Gotcha. Jesus, though, won't be had. You can't snare God in trap. God will not be mocked. And he'll make a fool out of any who would try. Bring me the coin, he says. Bring me the coin. Whose image? Indeed, in the Greek, whose icon 
Whose image and, and inscription is this? And that word icon is noteworthy. It's noteworthy for this reason because it means not just the resemblance of someone, but rather the word icon implies a source of derivation, that from which it was derived. Whose image, he says, whose inscription is this? Well, they say it's Caesar's, of course. Gotcha. Trying to trap Jesus in his own words, they found themselves caught by him in their own words, from their own lips. It's Caesar's, and rightly they say it is Caesar's. So Jesus says, therefore then render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. You see, friends, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they stage the trap for an either-or answer. But like pawns on a chessboard, Jesus played them. And he played them in order to teach us that the answer to the God, Caesar, question is not really either-or, it's a both-and. Render to God and to Caesar. Render to God and to country. It is good and right so to do. You see, we live in the domain of both. We as Christians living in the world but not of the world, we're two kingdom beings, we are. Two kingdom beings, you've got dual citizenship. And therefore, as God would have it, you and I are subject both to God and to Caesar. Now, as ungodly as sometimes we might think our government to be, the institution, as a matter of fact, the institution of government is no less godly than God himself. For he gave it. Why did he give it? Our own, our own James Madison, the founding father of our own particular system of government, knew well why God gave government. In a 1788 document, he wrote famously this, if men were angels, government would not be necessary. And he's right. We're no angels. God established the institution of government because since the fall of man into sin, man has been anything but angelic to his neighbor. He envies him. He covets what's his. He steals from him. He'll lie about him in order to obtain what's his. He threatens him. He extorts from him. He'll, he'll harm him. And sometimes, casually, like, like unfortunate collateral damage, he'll also harm those whom his neighbor loves in order to get to his neighbor and that which is his. Friends, you know well why laws are established and enforced by the governing authorities in order to protect us from each other. The very need for government is a reflection of human nature. It sets boundaries so as to civilize, to make civil and force to be civil sinners who naturally are uncivil toward one another. God's institution. Martin Luther comments, and beautifully so, again in the front of your service folder, he says this, worldly government is a glorious ordinance and a splendid gift of God. It protects a man's body so that no one may slay it, a man's wife, so that no one may seize and defile her. 
protects a man's child so that no one may carry him or her away, a man's house so that no one may break in and wreck things, a man's goods so that no one may attack and steal and plunder and damage them. Government, an institution established by God in order to, to govern, to keep in check by the sword the evil of men. Listen then to what St. Paul writes to the Christians about the government and what's due the government, what Christians ought to render to the government. Listen to what St. Paul writes to Christians in Rome under Caesar. Indeed, when the letter of, 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 to the Romans was written and circulated, it was under one Caesar by the name of Nero, notorious and infamous for his Christian hating and Christian persecuting. And yet, nevertheless, this is what St. Paul writes to those Christians in Rome. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, for he is God's minister, to execute wrath on him who practices evil, and to praise him who does good. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs, to whom customs are due, fear, to whom fear is due, honor, to whom honor is due. Honor those who govern, says Paul. Submit to those who govern, says Paul. And notice this interesting point. The honor to be rendered is not conditioned upon popular performance. It's not conditioned by our political orientations, whether we're red state or blue state or purple or something in between. It's not conditioned by low presidential or congressional approval ratings. I'm sure a Rasmussen or Gallup poll in one Nero would have polled awfully low among Christians. But nevertheless, Paul never once conditions the honor to be rendered upon popular performance. And Luther makes the same argument regarding parents. We're told, he says, we're commanded by God to honor father and mother, not because of how well he or she fulfilled the parental or does fulfill the parental vocation. Some do it in a saintly way. Others leave much to be desired. But we're to, to honor our father and mother precisely because God himself has instituted that office of parent to serve in his stead. And by his command, for the good and the preservation of the family and therefore for his whole creation. And so too government. Therefore unto Caesar, because it pleases God, we render the things that are Caesar's. Taxes, even when we think them far too high. For it pleases God that we do. Honor we render, even when we totally and completely disagree with the foreign and domestic policies our leaders would prescribe for this country. We render honor because it pleases God. Prayers. We pray for them. Precisely because God has told us, pray for your leaders. There is a realm, though, that belongs not to Caesar. He has his God instituted domain but note well note well 
where the government would require Christians to do that which is contrary to God's expressed word and will, then we must obey God rather than men. And so when the confession of the truth is labeled by civic law to be crime of hate speech, we confess no more softly. We confess just as ardently and even more so. And then we say to dear Caesar, we say, dear Caesar, do with me what you will. But dear Caesar, you've overstepped your bound. You see, dear Caesar, your domain does not reach this far into the things of God. Recall then the last words of the gospel lesson for today. Render then unto God the things that are God's. What are these things that belong to God, these things that are God's? Your heart, but indeed your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole body. That means perfect trust in him when the office holders of government perform so imperfectly that it jeopardizes families and fortunes and futures. Perfect trust, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. As much as we love ourselves, honoring our fathers and our mothers and our governors too, speaking well and true of them always, not passively permitting others to destroy them with rumors and half-truths, faithfully praying for them far more than we'd grumble about them. Is that what we render unto God, what's due him? You take an honest assessment of our record of the rendering unto God what's due him, and we know we fall well short. Here we are, derived from his image, his icon. We draw our being from him, and his inscription we have borne from the time it was traced upon us at baptism, and yet an internal audit will show you well and perfectly clear that render unto God we faithfully do not. But dear baptized, remember that you are baptized. And so remember that in your baptism you were united with the one and only who did render perfectly unto God and Caesar. Jesus Christ, you haven't. And I haven't. He did. He did. The devil, the world, your flesh, they're, they're going to work on you and wear you down and weigh on your heart and remind you of your imperfect record of rendering until the accusation feels to you like a no-win gotcha. But then, baptized that we are, cling not to your record, but to his perfect rep- record that was baptismally bestowed upon you like a garment that you heard of last week. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. If your record of of imperfect rendering would seem to have got you, then recall what scripture says. If your heart condemns you, God on the cross is greater than your heart.
Lastly, friends, I tell you, we sang it a moment ago. The same thing Christians have been singing for 1,700 years. Thou art King of glory, Christ, Son of God, yet born of Mary. For us sinners sacrificed as to death a tributary. You know what a tributary is? It's one who pays a tribute, a payment of olden days made by one to another to secure protection, security. Christ, our tributary, his life rendered unto God as payment in order to secure ours and cancel the record of sin's death that stood against us. And so therefore today with the psalmist we ponder, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? You know how the psalmist finishes that, that thought? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? He says this, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Nothing pleases God more than to see you and me and all Enjoy the cup of salvation that Christ on the cross has filled. So therefore, friends, in word and sacrament, drink deep. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.